Hi there and welcome to Dialogos with me, Will Milne, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. Uh, today's guest doesn't really need an introduction. He's Neil Kinnock, well, Lord Kinnock, uh, one of the titans of British political history, and of course, uh, notably serving as leader of the Labour Party and the opposition from 1983 to 1992, and then serving as European Commissioner. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, um, thank you. Um, so looking at your upbringing, it doesn't seem like you were destined for the political heights, I guess, you, you reached. You know, there are some people like, I don't know, Boris, who are from the age of two, they're wanting to be world king. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like that was the case. Or were, were you politicised from early on in your Oh, yes, I was politicized from early on. But the idea of being a member of parliament, uh, let alone leader of the party, was, it just didn't even arise. Um, I was politicized in the sense that uh, in the community in which I grew up, in the family in which I grew up, by the age of about 12, it was obvious to me, first of all, that improvements were vitally necessary. Um, I had a wonderful childhood, loving, very supportive parents, extremely hardworking. Indeed, they worked themselves to death, literally. Um, and they had a great sense of humor. They were widely read. My father was a disabled coal miner who uh, then became a blast furnace worker in the steelworks. My mother, a district nurse. Um, and they gave me values. But I think they probably also, together with my grandparents and aunts and uncles, uh, gave me a sense of perspective about the community. So I was aware that while we as a family were fine and stable and secure and getting material advances that had never been known before in an age of full employment, um, there were still a lot of gaps. They were seriously poor people. They were people who were ill because they were poor. And in terms of the community, um, I went to a, a ultra green grammar school, uh, but they were still things that were missing there and they were they were boys there it was an old boys school uh, who didn't have the same quality of shoes or sports kit that I had so that awareness was there it's very difficult to uh, explain with any real precision but for any conscious intelligent youngster um, those gaps were there and then the second realization, by the time I'd reached my early teens, was that all the good things that we had um, in Tredega, which is a South Wales mining valley can, uh, community, uh, were provided collectively from the tennis courts and the swimming pool and the workman's hall, uh, the library, uh, the park, Everything had been done by small contributions from everybody, which had then been turned into um, access and advantages 
and opportunities uh, for everybody, including those people which were the huge majority, like myself, who could never have afforded or expected to get uh, facilities of that quality myself from our own uh, economic resources. So to put the two things together, the awareness of needing to make things better, and secondly, the uh, effectiveness, the practicality of collective action and contribution for universal use, and you produce a socialist. There was also the factor that um, uh, our member of parliament, for what was then called Ebu Vale, was Anarin Bevan, the architect of the National Health Service, who just who didn't just have the poetry of politics, he was a, a remarkable figure and a mesmerizing public speaker. I was listen, listening to him from the age of about 10. My father used to take me to the meetings, uh, but was also a great political plumber. Uh, he didn't just preach about things, he fixed things. And so that he was a constant source of inspiration. He was in my boyhood pantheon with Gilbert Parkhurst, the opening batsman for Glamorgan in England, for with John Charles, the gentle giant, who was the captain of our football team, and great rugby players, and I followed rugby naturally very closely and played it myself. Um, and Bevan was in there with those remarkable figures. So um, that was how this democratic socialist was made, I guess. And that was politicizing, obviously, um, but not in terms of uh, personal aspiration or expectation of advancement. So much of that is a matter of luck in any case. And the idea of running for representative office uh, didn't occur to me until I became a university student. And then after graduating, realizing with the extraordinary job that I had, a tutor organizer in industrial relations and industrial economics with the Workers' Education Association, um, that there were people who were willing to invite me to run for a candidature, which obviously I did. I joined the Labour Party when I was 14, uh, illegally, because you weren't supposed to be able to join until you were 15. Um, and that's the background. Hmm. Well, so you, in 1970, you became an MP. Sorry, my, my Welsh pronunciation isn't isn't the best, but bed, bed well to you. I, is that that's not bad. You have to use the double L in Welsh, which okay. is bedwesty, as in slanetly, or yeah, pushlow. You know, it's the double L is that sound. The only other language in the world, as far as I know, that uses that is exosa, uh, which is a South African language. Well, I'm sorry for my lack of. Uh, don't, don't worry about of, it. Lack of skills in, in Welsh. But, uh, um, so you dived into Parliament at the age of 28. Um, yeah. My sort of understanding is at that time, people 
often had had careers outside of politics before entering politics. I don't know if I'm right in saying that. So w- was it a bit different for you and quite daunting coming to a parliament as sort of a newbie, as someone who's obviously you had a career as the, the um, with the industrial workers being yeah. a tutor, but yeah. it was a daunting coming in after quite a short career. Um, um, oh, I, I, I was very young. Yeah. Um, very lucky and it was a series of accidents really yeah. that enabled me to be the candidate um, I was 27 when I was selected yeah. and to be the Labour Party candidate for Ben Wesley which is a, a very safe seat we happened to live in the seat that too was a coincidence as well mm-hmm. um, by the time I was 28 so I was very young but when you say that people had careers outside politics. Um, If I think of the majority of the generation who were parliamentarians when I went there, on the conservative side, they would have had in common uh, service in the wartime forces, and some of them after that, and then careers in business, the law, very few of them in education or academia. On our side, the picture was changing. Um, The people who had populated the Parliamentary Labour Party uh, up till 1945 were almost entirely made up of manual workers and intellectuals. Uh, That sort of confederation of people from professional backgrounds who had come to socialism by uh, intellectual conversion and others who had become socialists because of the conditions of their lives in their communities and were mainly active trade unionists. By the time I was elected in 1970, the change was underway and it had been throughout the 19. 19- 60s because of access to free secondary education and increasingly from the early 1960s for people like myself the university education there were gradually increasing numbers of people on our side in parliament who had a background in teaching more broadly in education some in the law mainly as there's a few barristers, and the numbers and the proportion who'd been uh, engaged as active trade unionists and trade union representatives, local government representatives, um, that proportionately was starting to reduce. And we arrived uh, 50 odd years later at the position where uh, nearly all the Parliamentary Labour Party has had a secondary education. Most have had a university education. Um, their antecedents, their origins, are not terribly dissimilar to mine. Uh, but of course, um, we've had free secondary education since 1947 and uh, a much broader access to university education from 1960, but particularly. Uh, since the Blair government. Um, So now we've got nearly 50% of 18 and 19-year-olds getting access 
to higher education. We can argue about the, the wisdom and practicality of that for the whole population, but that's what's been happening. And changes in professional backgrounds, ways of earning a living for the Labour Party uh, match that graph of change in uh, educational and social opportunities, mobility, if you like, uh, in a society more generally. Um, so obviously you're elected, but you have 13 years before your leader. And in those 13 years, um, when first of all, what, how do you remember those years? Are they in a positive light or negative light? And secondly, um, when did the thought of becoming leader ever pop into your first pop into your mind? Is, is there, do you remember when it dawned on you that maybe you're the one to lead um, the party? Well, uh, I'd be very brief in describing those years between 19, uh, 1970 and 1979, yeah. when in the wake of the election defeat um, with the party under Jim Callaghan, um, I, I agreed to go on the front bench and become the shadow education secretary. Those years, I mean, in personal terms, they were terrific because our children were very young and they were growing up. And uh, I've got a lovely wife um, who shared my political beliefs and values. Um, and as a family, we had a, a, a lovely life. Never had much money, of course, because MPs were not terribly well paid. Indeed, I took a wage cut <laughs> to become an MP. But... Um, uh, we had a great life. Politically, it was desperately frustrating. Uh, first, because of four years, my first four years in Parliament were years in opposition, where we could win arguments and lose every vote. And then, with between 1974 and 1979, minority government, uh, which, despite being in minority, achieved some remarkable advances, but never fast enough or with enough um, audacity. In my view, I was most definitely on the Bevanite, Tribunite left of the Labour Party as a democratic socialist. Um, so I, I got a reputation, maybe fairly, maybe unfairly sometimes, as a quote-quote firebrand. Uh, the fact that I'm sort of built like a rugby player and have got red hair, that assisted with the caricature. Anyway, um, that was the first nine years. And then um, in 79, in that general election where I campaigned all over the country, um, I realized that it was in the terms that I've used before, put up or shut up time. You either had to agree to accept responsibility for the development of the party and its policies, uh, or be a bystander, um, an observer, um, a campaigner, yes, a protester, yes, but not having much effect on the refinement and improvement of the policy and its and the party's appeal, 
So when Jim Callahan asked me to be Shadow Education Secretary, um, I, I agreed. And uh, I suppose the experience between 79 and 1983, uh, Jim stopped being leader in 1980, retired from the leadership, and um, Michael Foote was elected against my advice and against his wishes, but with my very strong support, because I said to him, uh, well, you know, I think you shouldn't be running, and you agree with me, uh, you don't want to run, uh, but if you're running, then I'm going to manage your campaign, which I did, and Jim won. The electorate then, of course, was only the Parliamentary Labour Party, and uh, Michael won by nine votes in the Parliamentary Labour Party. I defeated Dennis Healy. And um, I didn't want him to run because I knew it would be absolute purgatory. Absolute purgatory. And indeed it was, not least because of the antics of what became known as the Bennett left, uh, a grouping in Parliament and outside Parliament of devotees of Tony Benn who was a charismatic and charming, um, brilliant speaker with a fine sense of humor and absolutely no sense of responsibility whatsoever. Anyway, they made Michael's life hell. And in the course of those years between 1980 and 1983, I knew that the day would come when the party was gonna to have to be knocked back into shape Politically, politically and in terms of its constitution, its rules, its policies, its attitude towards broadening its appeal, which is fundamental, of course. And so I guess around 1982, in a period of, as far as I was concerned, great political depression, um, People in my constituency, my dearest friends and comrades, started saying to me, you know, when Michael gets beaten, you're going to have to run. Mm. And I suppose that's the first time it really occurred to me that I'd have to uh, do that duty, accept that responsibility. And that's exactly what happened. Um, it happened much more rapidly than I'd wanted it to in the sense that I had any kind of schedule or scheme um, because um, the nomination process for leadership of the Labour Party began uh, almost accidentally, as these things do, the Sunday after our election defeat in June 1979. So I was thrust straight into it and uh, I won by uh, a large margin. Well, throughout, so obviously you made huge strides as leader to becoming uh, a very electable party. But looking at your leadership, um, the the idea of battling against certain forces is very prominent. Uh, you're battling against the militant tendency. You're battling against Arthur Scargill, and then obviously externally, Margaret Thatcher and the media were quite against you. How does that? How does that feel? Just just on a very personal level, just having so many forces that seem to be trying to take you, you and your 
party down. Um, is it quite demoralizing uh, just to see that happening? And to, yeah. Well, you can't afford to be demoralized, you see. Um, and you can't afford to be disillusioned. The best safeguard against disillusionment is not to have any illusions in the first place. Yeah. And I had no illusions either about the chaotic nature of the Labour Party uh, or indeed about uh, the strength of Thatcher's power and the willfulness with which she was prepared to use it. So I, I knew, um, I knew the size of the task. Uh, I also knew that securing the change that we needed would take a long time. I didn't think it would take nine years, and therein lies the problem and a major cause of our defeat in, in 1992. Uh, it took too long to make the change. And I was therefore there as opposition leader for too long. So that so far as large chunks of the public were concerned, by 1992, I was stale, old hat, um, compared certainly to John Major, who was virtually unknown and had uh, arrived out of the blue and was manifestly not Margaret Thatcher. And so he... He won by a very small majority. Anyway, um, so I, I knew what we were up against. Um, one factor, and you mentioned Scargill, did elongate the process of change. Um, I was elected in October 1983 as leader of the Labour Party. Um, I had no honeymoon. I expected no honeymoon because I was Labour Party leader. <laughs> and that meant uh, there was a, a battalion of enemies in politics and the press uh, lined up against me. Um, right from my own shadow cabinet, uh, there was a shadow cabinet then of 12 elected members, plus me, 13. Um, and only two of them had voted for me. So I had to win rent them round. Then secondly, I knew that I didn't have a majority on the National Executive Committee where there was uh, an organized majority led by uh, Tony Benn, who were antagonistic towards me. Uh, so I had to secure changes there and that could only be done by uh, elections, by the Labour Party Conference. Um, and I was facing Thatcher, who, with 43% of the vote in the general election in 1983, had 150% of the power um, and was continuing her program of high interest rates, an overpriced pound, of the destruction of 25% of British manufacturing capacity and huge cuts in uh, social and community, educational and health services. So, you know, there's a fair array of alps to be climbed. <laughs> um, and I got on with it. The problem was the miners' strike 
started without a ballot uh, just a few months after I got elected in March 1984. And it was bitterly divisive. It utterly preoccupied the consciousness and the energies of the whole labor movement, naturally. And it meant that the arrangements that I set in train for a reform process, uh, a revitalization and revision process, just stopped. Um, they stopped in the lead up to the strike in the 12 months of the duration of the strike itself and for a few months afterwards. So we lost about two years in terms of uh, organizational and policy improvement and development. And that was to prove very, very costly because we then arrived at the 1987 election with only the rudimentary beginnings of change that were necessary uh, evident. Um, we made, we advanced, we won, uh, we gained 21 seats. Um, but my objective was to try and gain 42, which would have brought Thatcher's majority down to under 100. And um, we just missed by tiny majorities about 21 seats, mm. um, which meant that that further impeded the kind of advance that I knew to be necessary. So they, there was the great range of mountains in terms of policy and power and opinion. Um, and uh, there was the then the great minefield of the, I'm sorry to use all these analogies, <laughs> um, of the minor strike and the way in which it totally distracted the labor movement and indeed public attention and public opinion. Yeah. So um, that was the task and they were the impediments. Yeah, it must be frustrating having all these internal enemies when you just want to you want to bring everyone in to appeal uh, wider. And I know you obviously your your speech, your militant speech was widely praised. Um, what was did you was was that carefully planned out, worded, or, or was it was it was it off the cuff? Um, and for everyone who doesn't, who can't, obviously the young listeners, what what was the militant? speech, uh, and what did that do to the course well, of the party? Yeah, if I'd, if I'd had my way, yeah. and there had not been a, a minor strike, or if the minor strike had been undertaken with a ballot, which would have changed the whole complexity and political context of the strike, but it didn't, because they didn't have a ballot, uh, I would have been that speech in 1984. Hmm. But in the conference of 1984, in the middle of the miners' strike, um, I, I knew that even if it was heard, it wouldn't get a hearing and it wouldn't make any difference to the direction of affairs. So I had to wait a whole year before I could make that speech. Um, and I wrote the speech overnight, like I wrote all my speeches stupidly the night before. Um, it, that just became a ridiculous habit. Um, but the, the parts that are most quoted, 
uh, were actually extempore of the cuff, me responding uh, to uh, the ignition of feeling in the hall. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was um, a planned and developed speech. I'd, I'd say well-developed speech, building the argument. And then when it came to delivery, I had a God's gift of interruptions from Liverpool militants. And uh, I had uh, a guy called Eric Heffer walking off the platform and all kinds of silly melodramatics, which enhanced the occasion. Uh, nobody can plan for that. But they were going to get this truth, whether they wanted it or not. Um, so I delivered it. Hmm. Well, um, I sort of wonder when you are a Labour leader or such a major politician, what does fame do to you? How do you feel about isn't it? Because I, I was asking Vince Cable this earlier. I'm just really interested. Like you walk on the street and people know who you are just by being there. Is that a really weird sensation or your face is just on the front pages of all the newspapers on after a certain event? How does that yes. feel seeing yourself? Um, I, uh, it comes at two levels, really. Yeah. Um, first of all, obviously, it makes you an object for attack. I don't mean people coming up and trying to hit you in the street, though I did have one or two encounters of that nature. Um, uh, but you are the object in UK politics of continual corrosive attack uh, by most of the newspapers. Um, and of course, because even the independent and objective broadcast media unavoidably have to take much of their agenda and information from those biased newspapers. That is echoed to some degree by broadcasters. Uh, even when they make every effort to resist it, uh, the vocabulary is there, uh, the references and the resonance is there. So, okay. Uh, that that goes with the job. And no good getting upset about that. I mean, sometimes it used to make me furious. Anybody who, who suggests it doesn't make you rage is just telling lies. Um, but you couldn't afford to let that show because obviously that would only encourage them. Mm -hmm. As, and when you deal with bullies, you've got to take them head on, uh, even at the cost of a few bruises yourself. Because otherwise, living with being bullied is much worse um, than any physical uh, or psychological pain. So you have to take it on. And that's generally speaking what I did um, without giving the impression of losing my temper. Um, tried to stay steady. And eventually, that won me a degree of sneaking appreciation um but that's one part of uh notoriety or notability or if you call it fame there we are uh being well known the other part of it is um great courtesy and great kindness uh, 
consideration um, amongst people who are either your natural supporters already, uh, but others who uh, will probably never vote for you, but are sufficiently uh, conscious of the effort that you're making uh, to give you credit for that. And that's living in a civilized society. So uh, we got quite a lot of that as well. Uh, as my children said years later, when they were giving encouragement to the Blair kids, who of course are much younger, it isn't all bad. You get to go to film premieres and, and you meet Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah. And Shrawadi uh, Wadi uh, does Labour Party um, uh, <laughs> concerts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, you've got to take that into account as well. Yeah. The only thing I ever really got uh, viciously angry about was the tax on my wife and family, which were utterly unjustified and completely out of order. Um, I even had Tory MPs saying to me that uh, they sympathised with me, some of them in a patronising way, other than others uh, like genuine adults. Um, but uh, that's the only time I really became outraged. Um, was when that those utterly unfair attacks, and you feel so damned helpless. Anybody, uh, you know, even a young man like you, will understand that whatever offence you take in an attack on yourself, it is multiplied a thousandfold um, by an unjustified attack on those you love. Mm. Um, and the sheer helplessness that you feel when there's nothing much you can do about it, except occasionally to sue the newspapers. As it happened, I always picked my targets and I always won the libel cases. Mm. But yeah. uh, that's a completely separate story. Yeah. Um, just quickly before we uh, end, um, I was listening to something uh, some time back and... Uh, you were saying how Margaret Thatcher, so upon your you departing as Labour leader, Margaret Thatcher wrote you a letter saying you'll be remembered well by history. And obviously, uh, when people think about, um, obviously, we haven't really gone into the 1992 election, but uh, you were so narrowly, uh, obviously, you, you did get defeated twice, but you were narrowly a few thousand votes away from being prime minister in 1992. But you brought the party. 1,240 votes. 1,240 votes. Uh, but you brought the party forward so much uh, and saved it from collapsing in on itself. Um, do you think history does remember you positively? Um, yeah, I mean, naturally, uh, there are versions of history that get some of it wrong. But generally speaking, um, yeah, generally speaking, the more objective of those who um, recorded and analyzed, um, they're pretty considerate. They, um, mm. there's, there's more sweeties than bricks, let's put it like that. <laughs> yeah.
That's good. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks so much for your, your contributions. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this interview with uh, Neil Kunuk, which uh, I thought was, well, for me personally, a great experience. Um, very interesting. Um, if you enjoyed it, uh, feel free to follow the show and give it a rating. Um, just a quick apology because my sound, my microphone was a bit off um, throughout, so I hope it wasn't too much of a problem. Um, I hope to have more interviews uh, out soon. And yeah, hope you're having a great day. Uh, thanks. Thanks.